There's no mistaking that smooth voice. It can only be, of course, Paul Young, who topped the charts with his smash hit debut album in 1983 and found himself on many a teenager's bedroom wall as he became a heartthrob while selling millions of records around the world throughout the 80s and beyond. I'm Genevieve and I'm so pleased to say that the man himself is here with me to talk about his life and career. After that thing he did with that debut album, please welcome Paul Young. Hello, Paul. Lovely to see you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, very nice to be here. Uh, before we get going, I know you're a cat person. You have a few. Yeah, we do. Uh, and I'm a cat person, so I'm sure we'll get on fabulously. But there's something which I find curious about you, and that is that cat people tend to like and have other fairy creatures as pets. <laughs> yes. But you also have a snake. Yes, I do. Called Solomon. Yeah. Uh, and the two don't really go together for me. And I've never really got what snakes have to give back as pets, unlike cats, where I can literally smush their faces all day. So what yeah. makes Solomon a good pet? Um, well, he was somebody that I inherited. He belonged to another family. He got lost for a couple of years and he got found again and they didn't want him. So we had him. And then my kids got on great with him for a while, but then he did something a little bit strange. Layla was the real animal lover in the family and she she does modelling and stuff because she'd done some photos with him but then he started acting weird and I think it was because he got one of her hairs caught in his mouth and he started to do this weird stuff oh. and also he can get very excited when you feed him which can be a little bit disconcerting but in every other respect he's very handleable he's good fun you could just sit and hold him and it's strangely calming my dad said because he said go on then i'll have a go and so i gave him the snake <laughs> i think he's as open-minded as me so he tried it and he said oh it's quite nice actually isn't it i'm quite relaxed and sometimes we let him snake as it is around the carpet <laughs> the way they do but presumably nowhere near the cats at the same time well they do come in the room and, and they look and they're quite inquisitive <laughs> as to what he is and what's he, what he's doing, you know. Yeah, it's, but we're just very wary of them. And we just say, no, you know, and, and so they just stay there. Watch. I'm afraid you haven't convinced me that they make good pets. But um... no. <laughs> <laughs> He's really old as well. And he, I mean, he, he can barely see. He knows something's going on, but I don't think he hears that well. I don't think he sees that well. So his skills of hunting are long gone. Oh, well, rather you than me. Um, okay, time is of the essence, so let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Right. <laughs> Rewinding back to the beginning, yeah. as a shy Luton boy who grew up with a stammer and found himself in an apprenticeship working at Vauxhall Motors, mm. I'm sure you never imagined... 50 odd years ago that you'd be winning Brit Awards, have six top 10 UK hits, three number one albums and sell mm. millions of records around the world. But if it wasn't for music, it wouldn't have helped you overcome your shyness or your stutter, would it? No, it wouldn't have done. That is the weird thing. Um, well, it's weird that all these little factions, when you put them together, seem to make sense. But I don't think it wasn't in my mind, oh, I must get on a stage to conquer my shyness. You know, I just... I grew to love music because I had some piano lessons when I was young. My dad, I think, or, or mum or mum and dad thought 
it would just be great for me to play the piano at parties because my uncle could play a harmonica and so we could have some fun. So it wasn't a career move by any means, but that got me interested in music and I started to, to differentiate between what the bass was doing compared to the guitar, etc., etc. And then it all went from there. Then I started practicing the guitar. Um, I got into a band, but I was... I wanted to be the singer, but I'm thinking actually, would I have been ready? Because I was really shy. So in the end, I became the bass player and I was quite content to stand at the back and play the music, you know, and then my confidence started to grow. And um, I still had the stammer. I mean, I remember doing interviews in the early 80s and um, I would notice it a lot. Mm. I don't notice it as much now. And so you were in a few bands at first, Moss Rec and Cat Call and the Cool Cats, uh, where you, as you say, you were happy to play bass and hide away at the back until you were scouted by Street Band and you have Kenny Everett to thank for your first hit. Who could forget it? Toast. uh, As he plays it on his radio show pretty much every day. But it became the bane of your lives as it was a joke song that you happened to come up with at a gig to fill time yes and ultimately killed the band but i just wanted to give a mention for the musicality of that song which i think was probably missed amongst its novelty the jazz rhythm the bass line a bit of scat singing and the only song to ever feature a toast scraping solo (laughs) it did it did and you're right and the um the actual chord sequence that goes down is a song i've only got one version of it by tony bennett and it goes Lover, when you're near me, always dancing round the floor. Please do remember to my heart. And then it goes back up again. And so that's what the other guitar player was playing that for a joke, you know, making it like supper club music as background music. But I thought, well, I've got to do something as well. So I just started to talk over the top of it. Your road to being a solo artist was a long old slog and years in the making. After Street Band, you joined retro soul band The Q-Tips, which had success in its own right. You released two albums, supported The Who at Wembley, and you spent, I think, some six years on the road with them both gigging before you went solo. Mm. And you were still working at Vauxhall during the day too, at the time. How easy or difficult a decision was it to leave the band and go solo? I mean, you said that you were building confidence a bit. Yeah. Um, By the time I was in Street Band and The Q-Tips, I'd already started my apprenticeship and dad kind of thought Street Band were quite good. So I'd been on at him that I wanted to quit my job when I was in my local bands. But when he heard Street Band, he kind of thought they were musically better. And so he said, all right, you can go off and be a musician on one condition that you complete your apprenticeship first. And so I did that. I actually worked six months on the night shift to get maximum amount of money in the bank which was another good idea because once I became a musician, money was thin on the ground. Uh, That's a common story I've heard. Yes. Uh, So you released your first two singles as a solo artist, Iron Out the Rough Spots and Love of the Common People, which strangely didn't chart the first time around. But then you released your version of Marvin Gaye's Wherever I Lay My Hat in 1983, which of course went on to be number one here in the UK. And then everything went crazy for you. But your record company weren't, keen on it initially were they because they thought the public wouldn't get it and it wouldn't be played on the radio but it's such a classic now especially the intro it's difficult to imagine anyone would even think that yeah i think it's possible that um maybe when they first heard it because that opening bass part 
was added as an afterthought. So maybe it wasn't on there in defense of the label. But as far as the rest of the song goes, yeah, we just had this, uh, let's say not an argument, but a discussion where... Robust conversation. <laughs> yes, a robust conversation. <laughs> where they'd signed me, they'd seen me in the Q-tips, so they thought I was going to make an album like that, but a much better one, you know. And I said to them, no, I've done it for three years and we didn't get a hit. So now... I'm embracing synthesizers, da, 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 and I'm listening to the pop charts, and I'm thinking I need to understand what makes a pop record a pop record, you know. And so then they were very wary of me and the recordings, and we'd have to listen to songs, and then they'd go, okay, yeah, you can do this one, this one, this one. So they let me do three songs at a time. And when it came to wherever I lay my hat, I took it in, and Muff, the guy that signed me, I think some other guy, there was a younger guy in there, Dave Novak, his name was. He then went on to make, he moved to New York. He was a big success, probably off the back of the fact that Muff said, it's not obvious where the chorus is. And then he went, yeah, he is. I'm the type of guy who's always on the wrong, you know, wherever I leave my head, that's fine. And Muff went, well, yeah, all right, I know where it is, but he's just saying it's not obvious. So we need some backing vocals on it. I said, I don't want backing vocals on it because the guy's always on the roam. Mm -hmm. So he hasn't got anybody with him. <laughs> it should be a solo voice. And I managed to win that argument by my keyboard player came up with the piano piece at the end where I go, that's my home. And then it goes, do da dum da dum da da which was a little hook line. And he went, mm. well, okay then, you know, but they they weren't sure. A lot of arm twisting. It was different to, I guess, other songs at the time. You knocked Rod Stewart off the number one spot, um, uh, Baby Jane, and the Eurythmics were in the chart at the same time, Heaven 17, Please. So it was a different sound that you were bringing that wasn't, you were filling a hole, essentially, that needed to be filled. Yeah, I didn't realise it at the time, but when I listened back to my album and place it alongside those other ones, we were definitely doing something different. There was a lot more there was a lot more musicality in it. So although I was trying to make a pop record, I hadn't quite lost that part that made me want it to be musically very good, you know. And uh my keyboard player was uh, he went to Manchester School of Music, so he would never play an easy chord if he could play something a little bit harder, you know. <laughs> but that gave it the thing was about No Parley when it came out that everybody from little children who probably liked Love of the Common People to adult musicians, they all liked it, you know. And that was something that was just fluke. So No Parley also spawned the hits. Uh, Come Back and Stay, Love of the Common People on its re-release, as you just mentioned. And the record hit number one here, as well as around Europe, was in the charts for two years, went quadruple platinum and was the second biggest selling album of the year, second only to Michael Jackson's Thriller. Not bad. Yep. After that long slog to the top, that feeling must have been pretty sweet. And the vindication after the battles with your record company too, over which songs would be on it. Oh, yeah, 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 because there was... When it got to number one, we all remember it very well because I was in the office with my manager and my keyboard player, who was kind of my musical partner. And uh, we had the meeting where he said, we need to finish the album now. We've got six tracks. We need at least 10. So we need to get in the studio. And with a little bit of luck, it might go silver. So he was just thinking, I still don't know what this boy's up to, but maybe we can get some of our money back if we just shove out an album now. But we still took our time over it. And um, like you say, it it, um, it went quadruple platinum, which is 
it might it might even be quintuple because I've got the the quadruple one. You got them on your wall behind you. I it? have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is the quadruple one. But they gave me that twenty years ago, so it could be more now. You know, I'm sure it probably has. There's mm. millions of copies, yeah. hanging around yeah. people's homes still. Yeah. Uh, you were marketed quite heavily to the teen magazine audience, and so suddenly you were playing to lots of screaming girls compared to the the Q-tips audiences you'd been playing to before. And with that came the photo shoots, so you could adorn lots of bedrooms walls yes. how much say did you have over your image um which was very suit and tie at the time and how did you adjust to having all this female heartthrob attention suddenly uh the suit and tie thing was a carry-on really from the q-tips because they were a bit of a ramshackle bunch the q-tips and um when the man got a record deal we spent a large part of the advance on smartening ourselves up so it came with suits and um I'd had spiky hair in street band and I still had it fairly spiky, but a little bit shorter and smarter. But then towards the end of the Q-tips, new romantics had come in. So I was trying to move the band forward, the Q-tips, and I started wearing long brocade jackets with velvet collars and all this. And I cut one side of my hair really short and let the other side grow long and over a bit like the Phil Oakey look from Human League. Mm. So when I got the solo deal, my record company said, oh, and also I grew it long and I used to crimp it <laughs> when I was in the Q-tips. So my manager said, if we're going to have a solo deal and you're going to be a solo artist, I think we need to stick with one image. And he said the short hair was always the best and the suits. <laughs> so so we continued the suits on, you know. Mm. But the photo sessions that I had, oh, they had me dressing all sorts of stuff. And in the beginning, there are some photos that occasionally come up of ones I've done for teen magazines. And I see myself and I look like I'd rather be anywhere else than in front of that <laughs> camera with this stupid hat and mac on that this guy made me wear, you know. You released a book this year, Take a Piece of Me With You, which has got a lot of photos in it. Mm. And uh, I think some of those teen magazine pictures are probably in there. There's a lot of like pensive looking catalogue poses. <laughs> pensive looking <laughs> in the distance pictures. <laughs> yes. You um you said that having a number one hit changed your career, but it didn't change you as a person. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Um, yeah, because I was with uh, the keyboard player who was a little bit older than me and had come in. And my manager, who was actually a little bit younger than me, but we all had that uh, slightly, I don't know what sense of humour you would call it. And um, there was a lot of Mickey taking going on and um, they never let me get above my station, basically. So I guess that kept my feet on the ground. That and the fact that I'd done six years up and down motorways and I'd gotten used to being on a stage. And also I remember doing the first big uh, Paul Young show after I'd hit number one in the singles chart. And I was going out on stage and doing what I'd always done, what I'd learned in the Q-tips. They were a great launching pad for me, you know, to be comfortable on a stage. So I was doing all the same things I was doing in the Q-tips and they were screaming their heads off, you know. And uh, I said to my manager, Jed, afterwards, I don't get it. I'm not doing anything different. But now they're all screaming at every move I make, you know. He said, well, I knew you when you were wet behind the ears and you still are. And he kind of dismissed it, you know. But this is basically that your mate's going like, who do you think you are? You're not attractive. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, he actually said something like, you're still the same idiot you always were. It was a word like that. I can't remember what it was. But just saying, you know, you're no different. I was naive, though, back in the early days. With, uh, with the female attention. <laughs> yeah, not really knowing how to handle it. It was kind of weird. Uh, so the last bit of nostalgia here, we have to give a mention to Band Aid, where you, of course, sang the iconic opening lines of Do They Know It's Christmas? And then Live Aid followed shortly after, where you sang to some two billion people around the world. But the eagle-eyed would have spotted that when everyone came out at the end of the concert to sing Do They Know It's Christmas, David Bowie sang your part as you weren't there because you were actually halfway to Antigua, weren't you? I was, yeah. Yeah, I needed that holiday. I'd been working so hard. And basically, we'd flown in from America to do Live Aid and we'd got it all planned that we would go to Antigua and relax for a bit because the tour was going to restart and so i just thought i don't want to miss my chance we only had a few days there anyway you know so and i thought if i go now you know then i won't even have jet lag because i would have only been in london for not much more than 24 hours and so yeah i did sneak off it might be seen as, as a little bit bad of me but what the hell i, I did the band-aid record i did the appearance you know and i just thought oh no i, I need some downtime was this the Antigua trip where you had your cod bike accident? Uh, yes, it was. Yes. Can you share what happened in that? I shouldn't laugh. I'm, but... I'm very accident prone. I mean, I'm surprised. I've had a few accidents falling off stage and things like that. I take chances. I don't rehearse my dance moves. They happen in the moment. There's a twirl that I do when I'm doing Comeback and Stay at Live Aid because we show it on the current tour. And as I'm twirling away, I remember thinking, I've never done that before and I'll probably never do it again. And I was just hoping that I didn't lose where I was and get dizzy, you know. So what happened on the quad bike was there was another island, maybe Anguilla or something like that. And uh, it was only a small island, so we had to fly out on a little biplane. Oh, not a biplane, but a small plane. And then a guy had set up a little business where you fly out there and then you drive around the island on quad bikes. So I'm doing that. There's four or five of us. And then we go over these sand dunes and I've got a backpack on with my video camera in it. So I go over sand dune in a really bad way, you know, and it goes up in the air, then it goes down. And as it goes down, it just stops dead. So I'm thrown over the top of the handlebars, but then it's still in gear because I didn't get a chance to put it in neutral. So it starts up again and rolls over the top of me. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, with this backpack on. So... I was a bit winded, but then we got on and carried on the holiday. And then when we got to Minneapolis to resume the tour, I said, oh, I don't feel too good. And, I, and I'd only just recovered from falling off stage in Australia, where two ribs had been put out of place and I had to have a travelling chiropractor. So then Jed said, all right, I think we'd better get an X-ray as soon as we get to Minneapolis, which we did. And I'd done it again on the ribs and there were two cracks in them. But he said, there's nothing we can do with it now. There's already calcium forming around, so it's going to fix itself. We just need to get one of those uh, stretch Velcro things around your torso, you know, just so it, does, it, it stays in place, basically. This was during a period of time when you were very accident prone. You mentioned you fell off stage in Sydney. Mm. I think that was, you, you just like slid across and then just kept going <laughs> until you yeah, went yeah, off I, the stage. Um, can you share what happened in your maracas incident, please? Uh, yes, that was just before the Johnny Carson show as well. 
So uh, there's normally a bit, uh, uh, there's one of the songs I do and I'm playing the maracas and then the band hit the last note and they hold it and I throw the maracas up in the air and I catch them. It, you know, there's always an element of that might not happen, but I'd say 99% of the time, if I didn't think I was going to catch them, I'd just run out the way and let them fall on the floor, <laughs> which, I, which, I, which I do with the tambourine even now, you know. I kind of throw that up in the air to stop the song and catch it and they all go bang and that's it. So this time... I threw the maracas up in the air and the lighting guy had got that, um, they put smoke across the stage so the lights look much more effective. You get beams of light because mm. it's coming through smoke. So this time, and I'm throwing the maracas in the air at this spot time and time and time again, he decided to change the light scene. So they went up in the air, there's all this smoke, the light scene changed and they just disappeared from view. I couldn't see where they were. And I was waiting, I was trying to catch them. And then they just went straight up and hit me straight in the eye. <laughs> and so I was sporting a black eye then. And uh, they did put makeup on it on the Johnny Carson show. But I've seen a photo of me there. And if you look close, you can still see it. <laughs> okay, it's uh, time to move out of the nostalgia zone and into what I like to call the latter zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Genevieve here just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener thank you for hitting that play button again and if this is your first time here welcome you have five whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on so if you haven't already go and check out some of the episodes you may have missed and please do follow and subscribe it's totally free and if you'd like to support the show stick around at the end to find out how now back to the latted zone After the massive success of No Parley, the pressure to replicate it on your second album, The Secret of Association, must have been huge, but happily it was another chart topper and it gave you your first US number one hit with Every Time You Go Away. But then everything got even more crazy and as a result, you ended up paying the price with your health. Totally burnt out, exhausted, you lost your voice from overworking it. At the time, did you ever think is this worth it or was it always, this is worth it? Um, I thought it was always worth it. I think the biggest mistake we made, so I said my manager was younger than me, so when the success came, we were both handling it for the first time. Like if you look at other artists, like there's say one manager that, that looks after Janet Jackson and Tina Turner and someone else. So he's got all this experience. He's done all this before and we hadn't. And Jeb would say to me, um, we're touring, but there's still some promo that the record company want you to do, but you've got to be up at five o'clock tomorrow morning. Can you do it? And I'd go, yeah, I wouldn't even think twice, you know. But in the end, I paid the price because I was never getting any rest. And my voice, I was always talking. And I thought, I didn't understand what a voice box was. It's, um, it's much different when you're a sportsman, your muscles are telling you, you know. And uh, in the end... It actually did start to tell me because I was um, on the road. And there was another thing as well. I was on the road and then all the rest of the band were rested because they weren't doing the amount of work that I was. So they were going out to dinner and I didn't want to lose out. So I said, oh, I'm coming as well, you know, because I, I should have probably gone to bed. So we went out for something to eat, but my jaw had gone into spasm. Oh. And uh, I found it hard to eat because it just kept m moving from side to side. And it was just absolute exhaustion. And I, I wasn't spotting it. It's crazy. 
After your third album, you took a break for a few years. And in that time, you married your wife, Stacey, who you met making the video for Come Back and Stay. And she slapped you a few times. Uh, And you became a dad when your first daughter, Levi, was also born. It's really difficult, especially in the music industry, to take a break and then come back as musical tastes and trends move so quickly. So that was a risk for you. Why did you decide to do it? Um, I, it, <laughs> I didn't plan that one or think about it that much either. I, I just said, well, the third album I tried to please America with, I didn't get it right. And it also wasn't right for the Europeans and therefore it didn't sell as well as the second album. And I just said to him that I don't have a personal life and now I'm not making the right business sort of decisions I think I just need to get away from this for a while. And also we were married by this point and I've got a young child. And I said, uh, I don't want to miss this bit (laughs) because the best bit is when they're young. So we didn't do much, you know, until it it was only like a couple of years. And then my manager said, I think you need to start making another album. And I wasn't idle because I was writing songs and things like that. But I just wanted to get away from the mayhem for a while, I think. And like you say, it's a risk-taking thing. But strangely enough, we were checking with the record company from time to time. And uh, they were going, no, it's okay. They do their little surveys and they said, your fans are very loyal. You know, we don't see a drop. We see a steady amount of radio play on your songs, blah, blah. And they were actually happy to let me uh, for a while. But then I think they probably leaned on my manager and that's why he called me and said, I think we should start again, you know. So you did start again. You came back with your fourth album, mm. Other Voices, where you collaborated with so many people, Stevie Wonder, Nile Rogers, Chaka Khan, Dave Gilmore, and then a Greatest Hits album followed shortly after in 1991, which instantly has my favourite song of yours on it, Senzu and Adonna with Zuccaro. Uh, uh, but as an artist, when your record company comes to you and says, we want to do a Greatest Hits album, does that strike fear in your heart? Because I'd be thinking, hang on a minute, I've not finished my career yet. What do you know that I don't? oh yeah actually you've made me think there maybe they did think that because they weren't sure about sensing the donna to start and yet i proved them wrong on that one then i started doing more left field choices and another duet i'm really proud of was i i did a duet of both sides now the Joni mitchell song with clanad and it was for a movie and i still listen to that one now i think i'm so glad i did that because it's it's left field. Who would ever think that I would do a record with a Celtic band, you know? And it turned out being so pretty. And our voices, although quite different, seemed to work so well together. So maybe the record company were thinking, well, how far, how much further can he go on this? And sure enough, I did one album after that. And once again, they weren't sure why I was doing it. But I, was, I wasn't thinking like pop anymore. I just wanted to make great records you know with beautiful playing on them and lovely songs and um they were still trying to keep me as a pop star you know but you can't be a pop star for forever you can't be a pop star for 12 years you know it, it, because you've aged a lot by this point yeah and there's other things that are coming in as well and uh and you're not quite abreast with the new stuff that's coming up mm-hmm. so studio albums 
five, six, and seven came after that. And then from the late 90s onwards, you swapped the studio for touring, which you've done pretty much relentlessly ever since. You're, you're even in the middle of a 96-date tour as we speak, supporting your latest album and book. Yeah. But why do you love touring so much? Because it is exhausting. And I know for a lot of people, they find it quite lonely being on the road and away from family. But, but back then, how did you manage to maintain a marriage and a young family life at the same time? Because your family had expanded with two more children by that point yeah uh well i think when we had levi th- there was a fair amount of stuff still going on so and when we did tours we would put in the occasional point where there was like in uh, when we played in holland amsterdam and rotterdam are very close so we based ourselves at one hotel and so i i could get stacy and levi over and they would stay in the hotel with me and they'd come on the tour bus which children think is just amazing. Great fun. Yeah, great fun. But the other two didn't really see that stuff because then they were born in 94 and 96. So, you know, I, I was moving into a different phase then and I'd grown my hair, I'd got a beard, I was doing more sort of guitar-based songs because I wasn't writing with a keyboard player anymore. And so I think people have always been interested in my career enough that I I get decent sales. So they didn't see that. But um, the good thing about that was I, I might have toured a little bit less, which meant I was home a lot more. But I think it's difficult when you're doing that because a tour means you're away for a long time. So uh, you have to have a kind of a home setup where um, the family functions on its own. So we had a really good nanny and she was, she was fantastic. And uh, Tina raised all of our kids with Stacey. The problem is you come back off the road with your suitcase and you put it down and I go in to start doing stuff. They go, don't do that. We've already done it once. And I go, oh, right. And then you feel a little bit unwanted, you know. <laughs> it's weird because the family's functioning on its own and you've just walked into it and upset the um, pace, you know. It's strange. It is a strange existence. And I guess now because of the way the music industry has changed and streaming venues are streaming revenues, sorry, are so small, uh, which makes it difficult for heritage artists to make money in the way they used to. You have to be on the road constantly to earn money. Mm. But I imagine when you were younger, you probably thought, work hard now and retire on the royalties later. Yes, I did. Didn't quite happen that way. (laughs) But um, uh, actually the royalties are improved because the vintage artists, as you say, they've now introduced something where if you were signed before the year 2000, I think any debts you got to record companies are wiped clean. Oh, that's good. So now I see more from the recordings, which is great. I still, even though you look at, you know, 60, what was it? I looked at, um, no, 66.2 million plays a year on Spotify. You think, oh, that's loads. And then you count up how much. It's pennies. Of that is point naught naught four of a penny and it goes down drastically you know mm. um so that's still got to be worked on and i think musicians need to lean heavily on their record companies to um to try to get a better deal and of course the other thing you've become known for now is your love of food mm-hmm. you appeared on celebrity master chef and hell's kitchen and had a stint chefing in stacy's restaurant for a bit in the late noughties yeah. and even released a cookbook so as a keen cook my question for you is have you succumbed to getting an air fryer yet? <laughs> That's so funny. Well, because they came about in lockdown. So, because we've got nothing else to do. 
And so I bought one and then it sat in the box for six months. And we only just got it out uh, a few months ago and tried doing some different things. But we've only done the most basic like they're still frozen chips, but you put them in, in there and, and they come out tasting nicer. But I've, I've still not done anything from scratch. And anyway, I don't really see the benefits of it. So, yeah. Energy saving, money saving, apparently, is is the most benefit that people get. How oh, is it energy saving? Oh, that's quite good. But it is noisy. God. My top tip, I don't have one, but my, my parents have one. And my top tip was I bought these air fryer liners because my dad would just complain that they would just get so dirty every time you use it you have to clean it all the time yeah put these lights like a baking sheet that you put in and he says it's like yeah. the best invention ever ah right but um yeah one day i will try making uh chips from scratch and putting those in and then maybe the old i'm not keen on buffalo wings and things like that but i'll find something else to do with it <laughs> I've um, I've heard you say a few times that musically you like curveballs and yeah. being a bit left field, mm. and life has thrown a fair few curveballs at you too. Um, financially, you lost quite a bit of money on a failed investment early on. You yep. split from Stacey for a couple of years in the mid noughties and then she sadly passed away in 2018 after being diagnosed with brain cancer. And through it all, you've remained remarkably pragmatic. Where has that mindset? come from because it's easy to fall into the trap of negative thinking oh yeah no I, I i can fall into negative thinking and i think maybe the jolt was after stacy died and i thought i've still got a life ahead of me you know i can't um that's not the end of it and um i've gone from being i think capricorns are always supposed to be uh they're very sure-footed, so they want to be careful what they do to it before they do it. So that's why it takes me so long to make albums. You might notice that I haven't done as half as many as bands like the Eurythmics that were throwing them out everywhere. I take a long time with mine. But in the same way, I've got some of the fun back by starting another band, you know, the Pacaminos. And most of the musicians I use are friends with me as well. So I tend to enjoy it all the time. And um, and also, like at the beginning of this tour that I'm doing, the Behind the Lens tour, where it's much more talk involved, that was a little scary for a while because it was a whole different ball game. I thought, I'll do five shows a week because it's only talking. But it's a different kind of tired because it's, it's the travel, because you're doing smaller places to keep it intimate with the audience. And you have to be mentally aware and on top because if people shout something out or something like that and we do question and answer at the end i've got to be able to come up with, with the answers fast so i'm still really tired by the end of the night you know but i worried about it in the beginning but then once i got the hang of it i thought no i'm enjoying this now it's it's good fun so let's talk about los pacaminos i mean alongside your solo career you've had this parallel career yeah. <laughs> with, with your Tex-Mex band which you formed in 1992 uh, when you found yourself without a record label and you as you said you got some friends together to make some music and you probably never imagined you'd be celebrating your 30th anniversary now um, oh. but having started in a band originally and then going solo to go back and start a band in a totally different genre you're not known for that's an interesting move Yes, I know. Um, I do like to keep my fans guessing, you know. And what strangely happened, and I don't, I don't mind this at all, is um, some of the older fans 
I think the kind of music that the Pacaminos do appeals to people, say, in their sort of forties and above really you know because uh, the songs are a little bit they're adapted for an older person who will understand what the lyrics are about or maybe it's just the way we write them but i, I think within that style of music i can write a more sort of mature lyric and story that's still got an element of humor to it and that's what makes it fun uh, and the other thing for doing something a different style is i try to get this over in the talking tour as well, because I'm aware that there are some diehard fans here that have seen everything I've done all the way through and they buy it and they love it and they like the changes. But then there are others that are only, if you were to ask them, they wouldn't be able to name more than five or six, you know, songs. And so I'm very aware of making the point that I always moved on. And even after I left CBS and I did the Paul Young album on East West, it was quite a different move. And even my whole look had changed. So I'm always on the lookout. I, I listen to any kind of music, anything and everything, really, because I might find something new that I really like. And so I just keep going. And I guess in a band, it's nice to be able to share the load. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with a few other people than as a solo artist having, having to front it all yourself. Yeah, because as I said, you know, when I was in the Q-Tips and we were trying to move into the new romantic area, but it didn't really happen, when... The record companies didn't want to sign a soul band because that mod movement had practically gone and and you'd got new romantics and synth pop. So I was offered a record deal two or three times and uh, it wasn't something that was on my horizon or it wasn't anything I was aiming for. So I I thought, I'll have a go at that. <laughs> and that's it. And having a go turned into something pretty massive. But when I'm in the Pacaminos, it's like I'm back with the Q-tips, I'm part of a team and I can stand at the back a little bit and let someone else sing and put in a harmony every now and again. So the other thing I can do with the Pacaminos, we write instrumental songs. I can't do that if I'm known as a solo singer. Mm. So I can do it within the confines of that band. Mm. You've released two studio albums and two live albums as a band and you start touring again together at the end of November culminating in a show in Camden at The Forge in March. You really are a workaholic, aren't you? How do you fit it all in and get the energy? Well, we've actually just released our third album as well this year, so that's what we're touring on the back of. And it's mainly, it's still the fallout from lockdown because it turns out we did the first two albums exactly 10 years apart and 10 years after we started. So really the time to do our third album should have been last year when we were exactly 30 years old but then i had to complete my album first because it was so close to being done and it was a really slow process after covid you know to get into studios and a lot of people had half shut them down and the staff's not there so it was really really slow to finish that album off and then we had to finish off the pacaminos one so i've got the paul young album came out in may and then the Pacaminos album came out in August, I think. So now I'm competing with myself <laughs> <laughs> with two albums, which is ridiculous. At least if you're competing against yourself, you'll always win. Ah, yes. And that's the way I should look at it. Be positive. <laughs> uh, just before we go, please, 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 can you sing for me your rendition of Rhinestone Cowboy in the style of Donald Duck? Oh, you've been doing your research, yeah. Okay, so it goes... Um, <laughs> like that. 
Oh, that's brilliant. That is just as good as the version of Yesterday by the Beatles that I've heard as sung by Daffy Duck. <laughs> oh, that is... If you've not heard that... I haven't heard that. It's on YouTube and it's just the way he goes... I'm not, I'm not going to do a very good impression, but it's... <laughs> it's just very, very funny. <laughs> I'm like, half the men I used to be. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear it. <laughs> Oh, so good. Paul, it's been so lovely speaking with you today. There's so Pleasure. much we can Thank talk you. about, but time has run away from us. Ah. Try not to work too hard. Enjoy some time off for Christmas and see you in Camden in March. Okay, lovely. Thank you. Huge thanks again to Paul for joining me for a great chat and that brilliant Donald Duck impersonation. As we mentioned, he is a busy bunny touring at the moment, so you can catch him and the Pacaminos around the UK until March 2024, culminating with that show at The Forge in Camden. Plus, Paul's Behind the Lens UK tour is also running until May, coming to a town near you. There are some European tour dates too, and you can find more details about those on Paul's website. And everything I just said is also in the show notes if you need a reminder. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. It's always nice to get a five-star rating or review, and also people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. So please do that on your podcast platform of choice. It would totally make my day. And please follow on social media and share the pod so others can discover and listen too. Just search for Celebrity Catch Up and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>